Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Indie radical Meryl Garbus, aka Toonyards, first began creating her homemade tracks back in 2006 using a voice recorder and looping devices to construct songs with a signature formula of ukulele, percussion, and a booming, soulful voice. Things have broadened since then, and speaking at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy, Garbus talked about learning to control her voice and how her unique background in puppeteering has informed her music over the years. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please, very, very big welcome to Yard's Meryl Garbus. Thank you. So I believe you've been locked away for the last 10 days or so. Is that working on a new record? Mm-hmm. Locked. Yep. Uh, what kind of, what sort of phase are you in? Are you in a collecting phase or a writing phase or a recording phase? <clears throat> uh, we, we do it all right now at the same time. Um, we started spending money on, on equipment of our own so that we didn't have to be in a recording studio all the time and pay for that time. Um, I am, I get really nervous about money and always have. In fact, this is really incredible to be here because I used to live here and I had no money (laughs) Um, when I lived here. And, um, and it's really weird to be here and have money and have money, uh, Like literally to go to the the depanur and buy like groceries instead of like a grocery. Um, but that is all to say that uh, I I find something that's hard about being in a recording studio is that I know what I need to get done there usually, or I know that I need to get a lot done, and I'm watching the minutes tick down, and um, I find that that's not uh, conducive to creativity. So um, Nate, my partner, and I, we, uh, we started investing in, you know, we got an Apollo converter. We got, um, we have a UA preamp. We have, uh, we have our little rack, and we brought that rack to a, to a cottage by the ocean in California. And, um, <laughs> and that's where I find my inspiration, by the sea. Um, it felt really luxurious, but that's what, what we did. I got to, you know, I would wake up in the morning and do what is now my practice of Qigong meditation, and I got to do that outside. I live in Oakland, California, so usually there's there are many floors and much concrete beneath me, but it was like grass underneath my feet, and um, and you know take audio samples of the ocean and realize a lot about white noise. And we had a um, a Prophet Six synthesizer with us, so it would be like just looking out at the ocean, making oceanic type white noise as we were listening to also to, it was just crazy. So that's what we did. And also we composed songs and wrote lyrics and, um, and all of those things. But I'm finding that a lot of it is, it feels better to me if it's not like, okay, I'm about to make an album. I'm going to start by, uh, finding, finding things and then 
whittle them down into songs and then the songs be- get mixed down and then become a record. If I'm just making music all the time and, and you know, hearing Pauline Oliveros just now is so inspiring, um, listening, just listening and listening and listening and listening to what I'm producing and then listening around and listening, you know, just these, um, just endlessly listening and and creating in a way that feels uh, not not hurried and um, and hopefully sustainable, you know. I mean, it seems like over your records, some instruments have kind of come in and out of your sound. You know, at the beginning, it was just you, loop pedal and a ukulele, and then you kind of added bass guitar and various other things. Are there certain instruments that are kind of back in the mix or out of the mix in the music you're making at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, the the ukulele got old, I guess, in a way, or it got confining. <laughs> but the first Tune Yards record was, um, it wasn't looping pedal, it was Audacity, that free freeware. It was like pre-garage band, because uh, I'm old. Um, but it was, it was looping that way. So it was looping in, in a real, like, almost word document cut and paste way. Um, and... And it was interesting then using looping pedals as a way to to create music, write music, but then also to recreate what I was recording that way live. Um, so, but yeah, I don't. I think I think for a long time. I mean, my voice is absolutely my primary instrument, and for a long time, I felt pretty. Um, I won't say embarrassed, but that that wasn't a legitimate instrument uh, to you know compared with. I don't know, studying drums or any other, or or guitar or piano or any, you know, having, I didn't feel like I had a fluency or I had uh, an ability to be a legitimate musician based on the fact that I had been singing my whole life. But that's kind of what comes through. So ukulele was a way, I think that was my first, one of the first instruments that really drew songs out of me that really felt like the songs could come through. But I think it was less about the ukulele and more about a framework for for songs, if that makes sense. You just mentioned kind of, you know, starting out in Montreal and living in a tiny apartment and recording Bird Brains. Um, and I just wondered what kind of support you had from the kind of people around here. You've talked about the scene being very supportive and that being the only reason that Tune Yards came into existence. Can you give us a bit of a sense about what that was and what you had to do to make that happen? Friends, friend, some of whom, one of whom especially is in the audience now, Patrick Gregoire, who's a big part of this this town from what I, I mean, the hugest part of my town <laughs> of Montreal. Um, but Patrick and I started playing music when we met uh, teaching at a summer camp and I started coming up to Montreal. We were playing gigs together and then I was introduced to this whole world of people just playing music and 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 doing that <laughs> as, a, as a thing. I came from a background of puppeteering, <clears throat> very different from the bohemian scene of indie rockers that I found here in Montreal. Uh, but no, I like that, that people were putting on their own shows and were, um, were living in an urban environment that was also hospitable to creativity. You know, that to me, I was living in Vermont in a very isolated and um, insular community. And to be in a city and be and have all, I mean, the city, Montreal is, there's something about it that's still really 
alive to me and really moving to me as a city. And I think that was very clear. And then I guess the support, you know, you, you're here collaborating with each other. I was saying to Emma before that I, when you say the word collaboration to me, I instantaneously go like, <gasps> because my, because I love being by myself and creating music personally. I mean, there's something about that that is, it's the reason why I started or continued to play music was being alone with music and listening to records at my parents' house with these huge 70s style headphones as a kid and losing myself in music. I have a tendency to just want that. I want the numbing quality almost of music and losing myself. And I think, I think in Montreal, first of all, people are supportive of or were when I was here supportive of innovation that people were doing weird shit. Can I swear? Um, and applauding each other for it. And there was also this history of, you know, Arcade Fire and Wolf Parade and these bands that, um, you know, the, the ambitious person in me of which she is a huge, she's huge in there. I didn't, it's, you don't see that ambitious, huge person, but she's in there. And that part of me, and I think that part of us when we had a band was like, we can do this. We can make money on, you know, playing music. We can, um, we can make a living. We can tour the world. We can, um, it was like this, it was a dream, you know, it's dreamy. I mean, come on, we're all sitting here. There was like a glorious buffet of the best food on earth in there. I got a cappuccino for free, you know, um, this is living the friggin' dream. And, um, and I think that that, um, but, but also living in a way that doesn't seem, um, it's, it seemed, um, organic and sustainable. I didn't need a lot to be, I was so happy here and I didn't, and I lived in a utility closet with a boiler, you know? What do you have to give in a, a, an environment like that? You know, some of you might have been lucky enough to have experienced that either as a music fan or as, a, as an artist, where you're part of something that's happening and, and you're there as it's happening, as it's developing. And I, I would say in those things, you, you kind of gain your status by doing, by contributing. Did you have that experience of a moment where you felt like, oh, I can see this thing happening, it's something I can do and wanting to contribute from that point or just suddenly feeling that you had this stuff you were doing on the side that suddenly could fit in to something that was occurring? That's a good question. I mean, I think I, I felt that something happened with Toon Yards that specifically hit a cultural nerve, I guess, and it hit a nerve at a specific moment in, in music and music, I don't know, where, wherever we're at or wherever we were at 10 years ago, because now Toon Yards has existed for a decade, which is insane and, and also makes me feel terrified a lot of the time because I think that that can happen to musicians where you hit a nerve and then you're like and then everyone's all up your in your stuff for a hot second and then um and the idea because I think we're all ravenous for new music and new ideas there's a sense that like oh and then what happens or or <clears throat> you know, the, the kind of, I don't know, I felt like absolutely I hit a nerve. And then from then on, what do you do with that? Do everyone expects, you know, and, and I expect of myself better, just like the same so that people don't, you don't lose your audience and bigger, like something more to, you know, instead of what I'm finding now is that I get to have my musical practice and that 
cultural nerve, it can be there and I can hit it or not. But if I don't have my practice, then I'm kind of floating in this wind of other people's perception of me or other people's desires of me versus, um, versus centering myself, uh, in, in my artist practice, which is totally new for me as a concept. So I'm interested in this idea of like, particularly if you're kind of the sort of artist who has a very singular practice, how do you manage when more people get involved? You know, you started as one, you became two, suddenly there's kind of a whole load of people involved in tune yards. Um, how do you manage that? I don't, because uh, then I hired a manager. That was a really good thing, <laughs> because I don't manage things well. But more, less on a practical level and more on a creative level. You know, yeah. suddenly there's different inputs. It's not just you in a room doing what you want. There are other people with ideas or suggestions or input, musical mm-hmm. or or other types of input. Yeah, I mean, I think I think right now i mean the first the first thing is that even though I, I say i love making music by myself it's very it was always very clear to me from a very early point that making music with other people is far more rewarding and that was you know singing with other people you know i, I sang in choirs and a cappella groups from all of my youth and and that was where i had those moments of of next level musical experience. So I think as much as I hate, you know, in the way that I, um, I'm a, I'm pretty afraid when it comes down to it, I'm pretty afraid of other humans because other, let's be real. We're pretty crazy. We all have our own shit. And so meeting somebody else, you're instantaneously being exposed to their stuff. And especially in a musical context, when we are at our most open, I believe if we're doing it well, or we're doing it honestly, um, that's a scary place to be, but I also believe in it so much that I'm willing to do that. And, um, so now my primary collaborator is my husband, which is nice because we get along pretty well. Uh, and we, we have formed a real trust with each other and a real back and forth so that I feel like I'm putting out stuff and I'm, I can safe, it feels safe to engage in this collaboration. And then we broaden it out from there. And so what has happened is that as Tune Yards has gone through these different, you know, albums and cycles, we'll start with the core of the two of us and then grow that out to, you know, we took two saxophone players on the road or we took, last time we took um, two vocalists and a percussionist on the road. And that, um, when I, I guess I know that I'm, I have trouble answering questions. I hope I'm answering the question. But to answer the question, I think having the central um, core of what I know to be the honest part of the music, if that's there and I can keep that intact, I can sense really clearly when that's not there, when that no, that person's not working or I need to talk to them about uh, groove or I need to talk to them about, I know that you're feeling this on top of the beat, but like, I really need you to sit back into it. I've grown my confidence over this, over these years to be able to really sense when it's not working and, and have the confidence and the, the wherewithal to communicate that. See, another thing you've been doing around collaboration is bringing together other female artists for the Claw radio show that you've been doing for RBMA Radio. Um, how have you found kind of instigating other people's collaborations as opposed to your own? Mm. It's tough. Has it been... I mean, it's tough. It's really... But uh, it's tough from like a logistical point of view. And I don't see... I don't see the collaborators... I think they're really excited. And in fact, I mean, the whole, the whole premise was that I wanted to pair 
uh, women rappers with women beat makers because a lot of the women rappers that I was hearing um, and discovering, they when I asked them, have you collaborated with women beat makers? They were kind of like, oh no, not yet, but that would be cool. And, um, and kind of vice versa. It's been so thrilling. So I say it's difficult because it's like trying to... Co- excuse me, coordinate women around the world and being like, Hey, I hear that you like, I love your music. And I think that this woman is doing stuff that you might, uh, that, um, that kind of logistics part of it, um, which Julian has been incredible in helping me with that. But, um, it's been tough to, to corral people again, because I think we're all into our own thing. I'm doing my thing right now. And to kind of feel, um, feel the value of spending time in that kind of collaboration. Um, it's been, it's been tough for me to ask actually, cause I understand what that means for other musicians, but the, the collaborators have been so eager and I think there's been so much, um, I mean, really every track that comes through feels really well done and really brilliant to me. So this is part of the radio show you're doing monthly. It'd be good to talk a bit about that and, and what you're doing with it, but with the collaborations, who's collaborated with who and just maybe give us a sense about who you're asking to work with each other. Uh-huh. Well, I think the one one that will play is Susie Analog, who's a rapper from the Bay Area, with uh, Susie Analog. Wait, Queen's Delight, sorry. Susie Analog's from New York. Queen's Delight, a rapper from the Bay Area. Susie Analog, a producer uh, in New York. And, um, and Susie Analog was someone that I... There were a few producers that really stuck out when I first started listening. And this is also... CLAW became, CLAW stands for Collaborative Legions of Artful Women. It it was just this concept that I wanted to work on um, to familiarize myself with women producers because a lot of times we're asked or are interested in working with other producers and it was very rare that there would be any woman's name on that list of producers and I wanted to know why. And sure enough, it's not because there aren't women producers as we know. there were a lot of people that that you all at RBMA introduced me to um, that I'm sorry, I lost the question. Who else are there? Yeah, so, the people who you've, the people so, you've so discovered through the radio like show. Latasha Alcindor, LA, um, is a rapper out of New York, and she was one of the first that I, I started listening to her stuff and being like, <gasps> how did I not know this, that this woman existed? Um, she collaborated with Asma Maruf, uh, DJ Ma from Nguzu Nguzu, and that was the first collaboration. And Asma and I met uh, speaking at on a panel about women producers, and I think her work and the Future Brown work and the Nguzu Nguzu work is so creative, and I, was, I learned so much from her about DJing, really. I just started to DJ, and, and what she was doing as a DJ was really fascinating to me. So those were the, two, the first two. Um, from there, it was just a whole lot of names. We have a whole spreadsheet of, of a bazillion uh, producers and, and rappers now. So is it important on the shows that you're celebrating women from across time and space? I mean, there are shows where you're playing music by, um, you know, people, extremely influential women from the past, like Daphne Aram and and then Kalela Records. Mm -hmm. You wanted to kind of dig deep in both directions. Yeah. I mean, mostly because I, I know so little and there was so much, uh, there's so much that I wanted to know. And, and I mean, I think the, the difficult part is that how do you, how do you frame it? You know? So, so I did, I think we've done two women raps ep- episodes. One was more, um, MC light and, you know, like, like, uh, um, 
I don't think we played Queen Latifah, but you know, like the women rappers that, that I kind of grew up with and know. And then, um, and then I wanted, uh, you know, one that was a bit more contemporary. Um, so those, so the episodes are, you know, something I was also experimenting with was how to be a DJ. And so I was trying to mix and, um, and do the edits live, which is far more time consuming than just having a playlist of songs. However, I've learned a lot about it and, um, and learned a lot from, from mixing and from, um, there's so much to talk about, Emma. But well, before we kind of veer off into a whole other area, should we yeah. just like wheel back a tiny bit and have a look at the, the, yes. the video that was made for the collaboration? Please. This is the analog. Let's have a look at that, please. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. The, the tagline of the show is that it's music by women and women identifying producers. Why was it important to open it up like that? Uh, just because it's all about inclusion and people... Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of times I remember posting something, um, it was just a quote from, from, I think one of the raincoats members and it was like, this music could only be made by a woman. And I, and there was a lot of feedback that I got, not a lot, but there was a whole discussion that came up on the f Facebook feed that was like, why does it all always have to be, you know, male versus female? And I thought, no, <laughs> it's not, um, it's, it's who's not being heard. And so that's what, um, we need to just be hearing people who, who are not heard, whose people, whose voices we don't tend to hear. And, um, and, and it was never, it's never about being exclusionary. It's about being inclusive and, and, um, like Pauline was talking about listening, listening, and then listening with wider ears and bigger ears and, and listening some more. So, um, I think there's a strong community of musicians that, that come together in different how do I be articulate about this? You know, for instance, queer DJ collectives, I think are making some of the most innovative music that I'm hearing right now. And, and I, what I think is that there are these spaces for, for people to feel safe in who they are and how they identify. Um, and, and I just, you know, I think from, from now on, that's what needs to happen. <laughs> we just need to be more inclusive. you be who would you be speaking about there when you talk about um queer dj collectives that you're really rating i don't know how you say q and q, k u and q how does i don't know how they say that but that's um there's it's a dj collective that um fox work is the dj that i've been particularly uh, she was one of the collaborators and she just she was really i'm just learning a lot i think through the whole claw thing i i just wanted to absorb information and wisdom from people and and really hearing like well what do you you know what do you need how do you need to be heard and who are who are you hearing that the world isn't hearing. I mean, those women, it's incredible to see that video to me, partially because it's so cool to see my neighborhood in Oakland, California, and then also to know that the women in Brooklyn were, um, you know, had their community being part of the video. And um, to hear Queen's Delight say your power, your high power, and speaking to, to women 
it makes me so happy just, just to facilitate that. You know, I had no part. I didn't do any of that work. I just did the work of putting those women together and um, filtering the funding from RBMA Radio to them so that they could create that together. And um, other than that, so I'll just say I wanted to listen and kind of understand, for instance, Foxwork was like, hey, I have all these these female identifying artists, women who, who I'm working with, who I'm connected with. And I was like, really? Because <laughs> that's what I'm really interested in right now. So it's all these this information being shared. And what I also wanted to do with, with CLAW is collabor- collaboration, collaborative legions of artful women, artful because I think there's... At first it was artistic women, and I was like, that sounds really lame. But art, artful is like, you know, uh, a little tricky, like like having to navigate. Um, and I think that's that uh, felt like a, a good aspect to add to the whole thing, that we are, but also we're finding this collaboration instead of pitting each other against, one another against each other, that we're all sharing with each other information. And I hope that that's what's happening here, and I can assume that it is, that there's, you know, there's a healthy competition where you kind of go like, oh, Oh, you think that beat is is really dope? Well, let me show you what I. You know, like there has to be that thing where we egg each other on for sure, but all in the spirit of of coming together and and um and having this having these relationships with each other. I think that's really the love part of it and the open heart part of it is something that I definitely wanted, and therefore it's not like. Oh, here are my, you know, here are my women producers that I am discovering and showing to the world. It's not about that. It's about um, how do we connect with each other. So it's, you know, it's really great to hear about the kind of platforming you're doing for other people and like the stuff that you're really enthusiastic about. But I'd like to bring it back to you for a minute, if I may, and to talk about your voice and to talk about how you get such a lot of dynamic range and tonal range in a voice from very, very big and quite angry to extremely soft and how hard you have to work to get a voice to do that kind of thing. So hard. Um, Well, I'm only, I mean, I kind of say that uh, jokingly, but it has been kind of hard lately uh, in that I don't think it's, you know, one thing that's not hard is kind of opening my mouth and and making noise that has felt pretty intuitive for um, for a lot of my life, but um, but I started to have vocal troubles because you know we played we started to play we used to play opening sets right so that would be thirty five minutes and I would just like wail for thirty five minutes and that would be fine and then we started headlining shows and then we had about you know, say 55 minutes of music and I could do that. And then this last tour, it was more like, you know, you're headlining, headlining in a show and people are paying money to see you. And so it's like an hour and 15 minutes or 90 minutes or whatever. And, um, and show after show after show. And my voice just didn't want to do that. And my voice, um, I had been told for a long time that there was a, a way I'd been told in not so nice ways that I was using my voice wrong. (laughs) Um, and as a singer, especially as a singer who's actively singing as a, you know, career, um, that's a terrifying thing to be, to be told that you're doing this wrong and that you might not have a voice left when you are however old. I went to a vocal doctor and they put the camera down and I didn't have, I didn't have anything wrong other than a little swelling, but I did take speech therapy lessons and 
again, all of this is like, cause I could finally pay for it. Right. This is all, it's all a progress, um, a progression that is of, um, of being willing to understand my voice better. So now I take uh, classical voice lessons, which is something that I wanted to talk about because I think that, um, for a long time, I just wanted to, to use my voice the way that I, I heard it, um, and the way that I felt it and not abide by a technique and certainly not classical technique, which I felt like was going to turn my voice into something that it was not. I, I tend to use way more, you know, chest and belty vocal, um, technique rather than, all that range. Uh, but I was willing to do it. And now, um, so now it is this really, this really hard work, hard for me because when people ask me to sing, I think what they're, they're asking me is like, go, you know, give it to us, you know, give it, give it all. And they want to hear this loud, powerful voice. And my teacher started me on like, like that voice. So it's like shrinking my voice down to the pinhole of it, you know? And, um, and so that's been really hard to trust that process. And, and I'm, I feel grateful to have the patience now to know how to practice actually, which I, I haven't for most of my life. <laughs> Can you just tell us what is wrong? You know, what is wrong singing if you're using your voice I mean, obviously, there's lots to be said about doing things wrong. It's mm -hmm. often the best way to do things. Mm -hmm. um, but what are the things that damage your voice if you're using it a lot every night? Right. I mean, I, I yeah, I hesitate to use the word wrong. I, I think that there are so many things in speech, particularly, that get in the way of the voice naturally being produced. So what I'm learning, and I know but a little, uh, what I'm learning is that it's most, for me, it was a lot of the larynx coming up and this, uh, like a, a grabbing in order to, to push up from the bottom to create, um, to, to move up a scale, say, um, versus really the way that I am now finding resonance is just that, is finding reson resonance, that there is this whole cavity of space sinuses there's a whole there's a lot of I don't know it's very mystical actually that sound isn't what I thought I thought sound was like okay you push air up here this way and you push it out and the sound is me pushing my pushing air through my vocal cords and pushing it out to you but really that's not how we are hearing anyway and so I'm trying to wrap my brain around around I think what I you know a, a more um, sustainable way to create, to, to sing, is to get out of the way of the voice, to just get out of the way. So that's all, all of my jaw tension and the tension in my neck and the back of the neck and, um, and then also all the tension in your body. I'm going to stand up. Is that okay? Like, like lately I sing like this where she's, my teacher is like, okay, you have to just like circle your hips. And it's, if you try it, everyone should stand up right now. I'm serious. Try it. <laughs> so if you're just standing and you're and just breathe and like put your hand on your belly button and make sure that when you inhale, that you breathe into your hand and your stomach's expanding. And then when you exhale, your stomach goes in towards your rib, towards your spine. 
And then if you just gently, like, like as if your hips are going around a clock face. And, and if you're really, you can pretty much zone out on it, but it's like all these little muscles get released around your hips and the sense that your diaphragm has this room to expand and then contract and you're not resisting in any part of it and then you can go the other direction. It's relaxing, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, you can sit now. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff that I'm doing that feels like slow. It feels so slow, you know, and really like this fine, like do you ever, I don't know, how many of you are sitting at computers making music most of the time? Yeah. And that, and uh, that's, I think, really hard because we're, I mean, you, you have this, you have the headphones or you have speakers, you have a certain sense, but to have a sense of internalizing rhythm, especially of how people are going to dance to your music, of how people are going to absorb your music in their, in their bodies. Yeah. I think we need new innovative workstations, you know, where you're kind of at the very least standing, which I know that they have, but like that you're, you're just more ready somehow physically. It would be nice to hear something, including your voice, although now it feels like it feels like you're, well, maybe you should just play a little bit of real thing, even if it's from a, a vocal period, which is now. <laughs> oh yeah. Slightly wrong. In, slightly in the it past. Was wrong. wrong. Let's, let's hear you. <laughs> singing a little bit wrong, just a little taster, so we're remembering. You've talked in the past about wanting to free your voice from Western traditions. What, what does that mean to you? <clears throat> it means the opposite of what I'm doing now, taking Western classical voice lessons. <laughs> Uh, no, I think it's just that the, I mean, as with everything, right, that I think, I think globally we are understanding that the, um, you know, being, being centered in this understanding of, well, the, the, the correct way is, is Western, is European, is, um, you know, that there's something that that has to be a center versus, well, that's one reference point to, you know, to any other culture of, of reference point for what their, um, for what their uh, ideal perhaps of what singing is, is going to be, is, is going to be totally different. And that, that is no, it's not, it doesn't need to be exoticized or, oh, isn't it funny how, you know, the pygmies use this yodeling technique and that's what, you know, what, it doesn't need to be said in this, um, in this kind of quaint exoticizing way. It really is that, that we can see, um, these different centers for, for people's understanding of what's natural, say, that I think because I was told that I was singing wrong so much of the time. Um, or felt like it was wrong that um, I sought out different different centers. You know, well, what's what does this culture think is correct correct singing or beautiful? And it's endlessly fascinating. I mean, I would love to just travel the world and be studying vocal techniques from around the world because I mean, because it's so essential. I mean, it it says. You could get, I would love to get a doctorate degree in that. I mean, just what it says about culture and, and um, 
you know, one sense of, of humanness to, to figure out how, how people sing and what the texture of their voice, how that comes about, what, what it represents. It's just, it's really interesting. So at the moment, you know, you're learning this Italian classical technique, but you've brought some other vocal techniques to a vocal group that you've been working with, haven't you? Room Full of Teeth. Yeah, yeah, Room Full of Teeth. Actually, they that's what they do, is that they study techniques from around the world. It's They're really incredible. And so they, they're, they are you know, Western classical singers, but then I think the first, one of the first things that they studied was, was yodeling technique, uh, and also throat, throat singing. I think it's Tuvan throat singing that they studied. Um, so they, and which is really unusual to get classical singers to use their voices in that way. Cause I think, you know, they, there is this sense of, oh, oh that's wrong. That's going to hurt your voice versus learning how to do these things really correctly so that it's, does, it doesn't need to injure your voice. And I think one of the examples we were talking about is Korean pan, pansori, I think it's pronounced, I don't know. But that was the technique that they were learning when I started working with them. Um, and the idea is that the composer comes in, I being the composer, ha, I didn't, <laughs> that was probably the first time that I called myself a composer and I was using finale to try to like, you know, enter in the notes and figure out if I was notating it right and stuff. But I came in and they were studying pansori and pansori is you know, what the, at least what I heard first about it was like, yeah, it's this technique where the masters of it study and, and they, they make this sound until their voice literally bleeds, you know, they're like bleeding out of their vocal cords. And I was like, what, you know, and, um, and that's, uh, that's like, was kind of felt like the mythology around that style of singing. So how do you make your vocal cords bleed? Well, I mean, it's all t just tissue and right. I don't know. I've never done it before. Thank God. I think the the spiritual idea around it was like, I think this is what I remember probably incorrectly, but shouting into a waterfall, I think it was, that's something so loud that you, you, and can you imagine the physical experience of making so much noise for so long that the tissue, you know, that, that there's blood. I'm sorry, this is it's kind this of a dark, dark subject matter. And I know nothing, I know so little about this type style of music, so but understand you, you that. You sent me a clip of um, a kind of master of this, this uh, singing technique. And that, that doesn't square with what I saw from this singer, who was mm -hmm. this incredibly composed singer using her voice in this. I mean, we should see, there's a, we've got a little clip of it. We should have a look at it. And then you can tell us a bit more about the composition you made afterwards. That's the, the kind of last minute or so of a, a 10 minute performance. What do you get from her? what she's doing with her voice. I mean, I realize how ignorant I am about that style of music. I mean, I, I what I'm remembering also now is that the relationship between the drum and the singer, um, that that's probably a, such a, an enormous part of, of that. But, you know, if you see a, an Italian opera singer come and you you imagine a certain style of singing that, um, that people revere as beautiful singing and that that I hear in that much more guttural or or belt or chest or whatever you want to call that it sounds different and it and it feels different when different cultures go to see beautiful I mean just as we in in our whatever all of our cultures that are represented here what do we expect to hear from singers and what is what is considered beautiful what I consider beautiful is often considered very ugly to some people and it's been interesting singing and you know 
through the years and hearing people say, you know, she sounds like, oh, I thought it was a man or, um, you know, what, what people identify with what beautiful singing is or what, what a woman's voice is supposed to sound like or, yeah, what, what we attach to, to voice. Can we just go back to this composition a tiny minute? So you were given kind of almost ingredients, source material, and then you created a piece for them based on the styles of these? Yeah, that they had styles. They said, you know, so what we've covered so far is yodeling, throat singing, pansori, uh, I'm forgetting now, oh, and, and broad kind of Broadway belting, uh, which is interesting to, to really get a, you know, a lesson about you know, from, from classical voice students on how to healthily do, do a belt style. So, so they asked me to use those techniques in a composition for them. Okay, should we quick listen to it? Sure. Thanks. I want to ask you about beats. Yeah. And I how, was sorry. just going to say, can we talk about rhythm? <laughs> <laughs> We're there. Um, rhythms, beats... How do beats come to you? How do you develop them? And can you give us an example of how it works for you? Sure. And I also want to say that listening listening to that piece, there's because it made me think about rhythm, because I think that people working with classical singers and rhythm is really interesting because there's like when people are used to classical conducting, it's very different to me than, than the way that I understand rhythm, which is kind of he, like hearing this really strong groove because groove isn't primary in a lot of that music. So, so hearing that composition is really interesting to remember how I heard it in my head and then how it was interpreted by classical singers is, is actually really different. What's, um, what's the gap? What were the differences? Well, um, and again, not, not to say that it was, that anything's wrong. It's just so, it's that, um, uh, how do I describe it? It's just a precision with rhythm. I guess, you know, I would assume that most of us in this room are, um, are I don't know who you are, but that we're fluent in, in beat making. I mean, that, that's, that, that is something that, um, that is, you know, when you're working in computers and synthesizers and drum machines um, and growing up in the 80s and 90s, that's, you know, I am used to, this, there's a machine making a beat for me, and um, that's not that's not the focus in Western classical music. There's there's a lot of other focuses, and especially for singers, there's a kind of fluidity of rhythm. The composer is going like this, and the downbeat isn't like dun 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 dun. It's like somewhere I don't know where it is. <laughs> I couldn't follow it if I was being conducted that way, um, versus being used to the click track in the studio or being used to, you know, singing to a, to a drum beat. Um, so my, so that has always been super fascinating to me is the perception of rhythm and the traditions of rhythm that are, as I was talking about before, like the more laid back, which is what I tend to be more attracted to than playing on top of the beat where you're almost, you know, you're, you're playing on or almost ahead of the metronome. Um, so to answer the question about how I, I mean, beats are everywhere. And so I tend to pick them up in ways, 
how like a garage door coming down I was walking down the street near our studio and there was just like it was like or whatever and I and just hearing it that way so a lot of it is from from walking and having the a pace of walking um interact with some other kind of rhythmic elements and then I've been taking um Haitian drum lessons and so that there's a a, a lot of those um, kind of essential beats underneath those Haitian rhythms that are now really internalized. So especially the, like if the downbeats here, that kind of like six, eight, but never, he, never emphasizing the downbeat, the downbeat is implied. So, um, so now that has been, that has been coming out a lot in, in what I do. I just got an MPC for the first time and I can't believe that I've never used an MPC before. And that, um, I don't know. I think that rhythm, there are lots of rhythms that I just want to hear that are, you know, stored from our memories, right? <laughs> um, memories and uh, yeah, I think rhythm is pretty much everywhere. So I just listen for it. So what's your relationship with your drum teacher, uh, Daniel Breville? Because he's the guy that got you involved in kind of Haitian drumming, right? Yeah, well, um, I, you know, live in the Bay Area. And so I, I knew a lot of people who had come out of Mills College. Um, Sam Ospivat is a drummer that came out of Mills and he was taking um, lessons with Danielle. Danielle had, had also taught Chess Smith, another drummer. I feel part of a lineage of... Uh, drummers who have um who have taken lessons with Danielle and continue to and study with him um he as as with any teacher you know that that you find your teacher and then you realize how much you know I will never learn in my lifetime all that there is to be learned about that drumming um but uh I've learned a lot about how music affects me spiritually and how it needs to affect me spiritually in order to continue doing it. And that um, because the Haitian drumming is part of voodoo ritual and an, at least a very, to me, a, a pretty basic understanding and elementary understanding of the association with um, rhythms to the spirits that they represent and are, are associated with, um, that has been, that's been a pretty um, incredible experience to have. And also just the fact that he's a master drummer and has been playing since he was a kid and to see someone to, to study with a master, that's what it, that's what I'm doing. And very infrequently and very, you know, I have to say, okay, I'm putting my lessons on pause to go tour for two years. Sorry, can I come back and try to, you know, it's very, uh, it feels very inconsistent and, um, I do the best I can and he, we laugh. <laughs> I laugh at myself um, about how little, how little I really know. But, um, but it's been, you know, it's been a, an incredible education and rhythm because, you know, when we learn from, from a master, but also from a tradition that we're unfamiliar with, it suddenly opens up all these different neural pathways. Um, what did you learn through that, through the relationship between drums and the dancer? Uh, it's just really, it's been really cool. I, I dance, I dance in a Haitian class usually on Sundays, um, and then drum for the same class. And, and that was a real education for me about, um, that you really need one to know the other, truly. I guess the same way that, you know, if you're 
a DJ that you really, you need to know what, what is, you know, what a room wants or like what, you know, listening to a room and listening to the rhythm of, a, of an evening, listening to what people's bodies are wanting to do, listening to, um, to what works and what doesn't work. Um, but in Haitian voodoo, there's this, I mean, intricately connected the dancer and the drummer and you know, just as an example, there's a thing called a casse, a break in the rhythm where, um, where the dancer, you know, the, the beat goes haywire for a second and all of a sudden it like rips open this, this to me, it's like ripping open this huge possibility in rhythm and the dancer, the drummer has to read the dancer, the dancer has to read the drummer, whatever is going on. And I, again, know so little about how that gets communicated, but, um, you know, it's all, all the, all the dances have different variations that the drums either guide or are guided by the, the dancers. Um, everything is a relationship between the dancer and the drummer so, so closely related. They just can't be divorced. I, I have learned rhythms. I usually learn the rhythm half measure off because when Daniel plays a rhythm, he starts it. I think he usually starts it on like the three beat. Uh, so I hear it as the one. And so I'll learn a beat backwards basically, and then have to translate it in my mind to know where the pulse is. But if I've done the dance, um, I know where the pulse is cause I know how it's been, how I've, how I've needed to dance to it. So how do you think this relationship between kind of drums, music and dancing translates into your music? and the, the kind of need to see what's happening, how people are responding to it, and to feed that back into the music? I've been wanting to to do it the maybe the old way of doing it, which is to put music in front of people before it's put on record and, and given to people, because that's the only way. If you put it in front of people and you see how they how their bodies respond to it or how they, re, you know, in general respond to it. Um, and then... In, in, in a kind of improvisatory way, which is possible with looping pedals, um, listen to what the room is wanting and then go go do that. Um, that that didn't happen, I think, on the on our last record because it was made um, it was kind of made cerebrally, <laughs> honestly. So it was made before it got put in front of people, and that was that was kind of difficult. And I think all the other tune yards music before that, I've generally been generally been able to put it in front of people, uh, see how people respond, and then use that to inform the recordings. So, um, so I don't know, I think I struggle with that. And I think, you know, for, for those of us who spend a lot of time again in front of computers or, or creating music, like, unless, unless you're doing something where you're, I mean, that's why DJing I think is so great. Cause you're actively being, you know, you're, you, you're in the hot seat when you're a DJ, you, you need to, to make the room move, you know, that's your job or you disappoint. And, um, and to have that kind of instantaneous response is really useful, perhaps, perhaps mandatory. So if you think about music like footwork that's developed in conjunction with dancers and, and with dancers in mind, can you maybe imagine yourself testing out some of the new music down the dance studio? Hmm. Sure. <laughs> Thanks for the idea. <laughs> um, one quick thing I wanted to ask you was about the kind of practicalities of singing and drumming and maybe also playing keyboards at the same time, something that you, you do live and I guess when you're making music as well sometimes. Mm. Does your voice have to become another limb? Does it have to become autonomic in the way that limbs do when you're drumming? What happens? 
Um, I'm trying to think of, like, I think it's, again, getting out of the way of the voice. And I think um, it actually really helps me. I think something that I don't appreciate about music performance is I don't appreciate when people seem to be emotionally involved in the music, um, or at least I don't, this is hard to describe. It's not that I'm not emotionally connected, but it's very practical when I'm performing because of that, because usually I have a floor tom here, a snare here, and I'm singing and I have looping pedals. So every limb of my body is involved and, and I have to be getting out of the way of my voice and relaxing my voice and thinking about, about breathing and, and that's where my focus is. And then letting the music kind of emote for itself, that trusting that the emotion was there in the composition of the music, that I don't need to give it an, I don't need to go, uh, I'm a real thing, you know? Like even that, it's like, it feels like everything's just super tight. Uh, but I think that's what we're used to in a lot of performance is, is seeing people get, you know, be into it or whatever. And, um, and I find that that, um, it was so, again, interesting to hear Pauline talk about that. But then if you're so invested in this, in your own story of yourself and what the music means and everything, you're, you can't be listening because you're, it's like you're living in a different time zone. You're living in the past of when you created it versus what's happening now. And I think that's, um, yeah, that was a long way to answer that question. It wasn't answering the question at all. Again. Well, fortunately, it did answer the question, but also we have like a little master drummer type person who has some thoughts on this. So can we have the Von Helm clip, please? Wow. <laughs> that was super informative. <laughs> I, I definitely, that's true that I, I do memorize which words are supposed to hit. You know, I, I know... I know certain, yeah, you got to match them up. So you concur? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Levon. <laughs> so a couple more things from me before we kind of pass it out to you guys. I just wanted to ask you about your kind of favorite drums um, and also your favorite drum machines, the kind of things you're working with at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, favorite drums, you mean like companies? Well, no more like, I don't know, like particular instruments that you have that you've always carried with you yeah. or any drums you've got or, you know. Yeah, I always love a super dead floor tom. It's kind of key. And um, and that's mostly because with looping, looping live drums, the drums really need to be not so resonant so that uh, you don't get feedback and you don't get rings, you know, tones ringing that you don't want there. Um, but... Um, lately we've been using the Tempest a lot, the Tempest drum machine, Dave Smith, um, uh, and that is because it's an analog drum machine and has sounds that you can really get in and mess with, um, oscillators and filtering and, um, and be very, um, be very specific about the sounds. And we just got a TR8 so that we have a, um, a super standard 808 and 909 sound, which I, um, that was something I learned from working with other producers is just, um, you kind of need an 808 or, or 909 kick sound a lot of the time. At least I'm finding that I do in order to, um, emulate some, maybe emulate the wrong word. In order to get power from a kick drum, it's really useful to have those at least in the mix. So, um, so we got that as kind of, you know, 
a, a very easily programmable drum machine. Drum machines are pretty new f- for me, um, but uh, yeah, that's what we've been working with lately. And kind of iPad apps? Yep. Yeah, I'd use Funkbox a lot of the time. Anyone use that? Yeah. It's really fun. Uh, yeah, Funkbox was like one of the first apps where I just, I got into, you know, on the road, on the touring road, just being able to, to make beats that way. And uh, iPad GarageBand, like that, I mean, I was super ashamed to be like, really, like this is what I'm using to, to write music. And I don't know why I was ashamed. I think it's way more, um, you get indie cred from like, you know, writing on a like tape recorder from 1982 in you know battery powered in your knapsack and uh whatever but it was the ipad and and being able to like on a plane have my my like headpiece for my phone and be like recording onto GarageBand on an airplane some vocal idea that i had and then getting the like like screaming baby in the background and having all of that just be part of the uh, composition is really wild. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think all of these things, you know, especially the things that if I'm going to spend money on an iPad, I'm going to use the, you know, free or $7 and 99 cents, whatever application to, to do what I can with it. It's, it is, as we all know, really incredible what we can do with our phones and, and things. Mm-hmm. Are there any kind of nostalgic instruments or pieces of kit you have that you've, you've brought with you all the way through? Sure. Yeah. I, well, the first album, Tunior's album, Bird Brains was made on this little voice recorder, handheld voice recorder. So I have that still. And, um, I think it's, I think it's a little messed up over the years. Um, it only, it has a kind of like really super crazy shrill high end now that I don't think it used to. Maybe it did used to, and maybe I've just become more uh, perceptive. But um, but yeah, I I think the the sense of like super compressed sound in any way coming in super compressed, um, and definitely these quote unquote lo-fi machines or elements where you get um, you get like for instance in listening to Pauline's tape work, there's that ever-present hiss of tape that I, I just am really attached to, to those, you know, the kind of ambient, the deeper listening sounds, the other layers that are there. Um, and I'm finding that with the NPC too, that it has this natural color to it that, um, that you can sample something and then being processed through the NPC and, and out through whatever outboard gear we were using, um, it just, it has this, it has this, the, the sounds have their own world and that is far more interesting to me. I think in this day and age too, that it's, um, to find original sounds, to find sounds that are actually like, oh, I don't think I've heard that before. You really need to, um, layer or process organic matter, I think, organic, um, source material. So I'm hearing a lot of producers talk about that, especially with voice, you know, processing voice and creating, um, you know, in the studio, I produced this album for Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. And, and in that, I was working with Bo Sorensen, uh, a really amazing engineer. And, and we were talking about 
like how many layers do you need to create like an innovative hand clap sound, you know? <laughs> and at this point it's maybe how, like how many 10, mm, I think 10, probably well, not 10. We probably used six or something, but you know, how many, how many layers do you need to stack before you're like, Oh my God, that's the best hand clap I've ever heard, man. You know? Um, because at this point it's fine. Like a lot of these sounds are nostalgic. Like the, the, the 808 and 909 sounds are like, Oh yeah, I know what that I just, yep there it is. Or you associate these drum machines with very specific hip hop albums or very, you know, you, you know where these things come from. So, um, so source material is all around us. And, and I think, um, I don't use Ableton. I would love to learn it. And I feel like I'm one of the few people who don't use Ableton, but, um, but there's this ability now to just go like, okay, bam, 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 bam. I've got this stack of things that, um, that together, if I know what frequencies are not going to cancel each other out, if I know how to how to make the layer cake just right, uh, it can really add up to this amazing new palette. It's all about the palettes. Mm-hmm. So well, I think we can all agree we've really enjoyed listening to you. So thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Montreal. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.